All right, as mentioned at the top of the uh, program, we're going to talk a little bit now about uh, some firsthand experiences at the top of the world related to the melting ice. I'd like to be able to say, welcome to Radio Parallax, Ted Cheeseman. Thank you. We should note, Ted, that you hold a master's degree in tropical conservation biology, which means if you were up in the Arctic, you're a long way from your home expertise, but I'm sure a lot of principles still apply. Yeah, funny how that happened. I <laughs> took a hard left turn along the way, but... Yeah. <laughs> well, Ted, uh, we're all concerned about these headlines, at least some of us are, um, and you just had a, the chance to be up there and observe it firsthand. Can you tell us a bit about the trip that you took? Um, well, I had the opportunity to take a group up into Franz Josef Land, which is a extremely remote archipelago. In fact, uh, so remote it wasn't even discovered until like 140 years ago, 1873, actually. Um, just off, basically off the planet. Our northernmost point, we're about the same distance from my office here in the South Bay, San Francisco area. To San Diego as from where we were to the pole. I mean, we're you know, really on the top of the planet. Um, pretty amazing place, definitely stark, you know, glaciated, um, not a lot of vegetation, but there are, you know, a few animals that call that home, and uh, we managed to find uh, 26 polar bears. That was pretty special. Um, managed to find some bowhead whales. That was uh, a big highlight for me, a very, very endangered um, or unusual, hard-to-find animal. Um, it used to be all over the Arctic, but were hunted out over the last 400 years, and this area was one of, is one of their refuges. So um, pretty cool place, and uh, got to basically poke around, do some landings, and and um, because there was almost no ice, uh, we were able to go just about everywhere we wanted to go. Yeah. Although we ended up going north of the archipelago. Usually the archipelago at this time of year is about the northern half is pretty choked up with ice, the northern and eastern por portions. And, uh, you know, we were pretty amazed to find nothing there at all. I was just looking at ice charts a couple minutes ago. And at this point, there's no ice within... Uh, no sea ice within 60 miles of the archipelago, actually further north than that, still up around 83 degrees north um, until you get to any ice at all. Um, so it was very much that firsthand experience of, you know, it's a changing world. Yeah, I got to tell you, as we're talking about this, I have, uh, I have The Economist. They did a special report on the Arctic on their June 16th issue. And on page four, they show the top of the world, and they show the normal extent of ice, sea, summer sea ice, uh, the average between 79 and 2,000. The chart shows 2011, last year, and this year has eclipsed yeah. that. And it is absolutely startling in the, in the reduction of the ice cap. Yeah, I mean, it's, and, and we were seeing it, you know, just as it was going. I mean, this last uh, weekend, we, we uh, well, let's see, no, weekend before this, we, you know, made news, although it wasn't headlines, it seems, in many places, but made news that it was now surpassed the 2007 minimum. 2007 up until now was the least ice coverage we've ever seen in the Arctic since we've been able to measure it using satellites. That started in 1979. And uh, something really wild happened in 2007 when, mm -hmm. you know, Conditions were lined up that it was an extremely warm year, not just because of climate change, but also just meteorologically circumstances were. It was a warm year. Of course, we're always going to have warmer years and colder years. But that year, 
so much ice melted that ever since then, the refreezing in the winter hasn't frozen up as much as in previous years. So what you have now is a lot more first-year sea ice. So even if in the winter the coverage extends a bunch, and of course it does, um, come the summer you have that first-year sea ice melting out much, much faster. So where this year, meteorologically, it wasn't all lined up to be such a warm year, even so it still surpassed that 2007 extent. So, yeah, that, that Economist uh, article is actually fantastic. Well, I have to ask you, Ted, that uh, the, one of the things that's coming up, and there was a recent study that shocked a lot of people, was how much undersea algae they're seeing up there. And, uh, of course, if the ice is thinner, that means we may see even more of that, which a lot of people are afraid uh, is going to upset the whole ecological balance. Yeah, well, it's pretty interesting, you know, and one part of this is just change, you know, and some things will benefit from the change. I mean, there's certain animals that will love that, you know, that, mm-hmm. uh, and in fact, there's a lot of animals that are moving north quickly. I mean, for a place like Franz Joseph Land, there will be species moving in there that couldn't survive there otherwise. But then you have the species that are especially adapted to these places that are starting to lose out. Like one of them, one of the, um, one of the things we see up there are these little birds called dovekeys, and I think of them as like as little penguins with wings. They're super <laughs> cute, um, also called little ox. And they eat a kind of, um, a kind of plankton that they look like kind of little um, winged buttonheads or pinheads um, that you can see in the water swimming around. Um, and uh, those, we don't really know how they'll react, but probable that their populations will go down. Um, Same thing with polar bears. I think polar bears will survive in the long term, but their numbers are probably going to be, you know, 10% of what they are now because most of the places that they would, would den are not going to have sea ice around them as early as they need. In the grand scheme of things, what really scares the hell out of me, I think scares the hell out of a lot of people, is the fact that um, if the world does get warmer and we have warmer waters around the world. Uh, warm water is a stable condition where the warmth is on the top and you, you don't have the mixing you need for nutrients to come to the surface and then uh, support um, uh, plant life. And and I, I would guess I would ask, any, any evidence been like that happening up in the Arctic that you were aware of? Well, in the Arctic, um, you know, you certainly have, I mean, okay, a few degrees difference in water temperature is not going to make a huge impact on how much uh, nutrients it can hold up there. If that's something that you would likely see around the edge of the tropics. I mean, what we have today is, you know, middle, middle latitudes are very rich around coral reefs where they have, uh, where they have structure to grow on, but in the open oceans super, uh, you know, devoid of life. I mean, open ocean water um, at the equator is, is a very low productive environment. That's just because of exactly that, this high, relatively high temperature, it's stable, it doesn't turn over a lot. At the higher latitudes, especially actually more so in the Antarctic, you have a lot of wind, a lot of current, so that turns things over a lot, and you have a great deal of productivity. Um, what's What's real uncertain is, you know, how will these big systems change? What we're seeing in the Antarctic is um, a significantly stronger southern ocean current that's pushing more water further south down along the Antarctic Peninsula, 
we see that every year when we lead expeditions south, where some of the penguins that really rely on ice-covered water, they're going away. They're declining, like the Adelie penguin, the classic tuxedoed penguin, the one that mm-hmm. makes every postcard. Um, they're, they're doing horribly in the northernmost parts of their habitat, um, their range, whereas other penguins, the gentoo penguin that, uh, that does well with open waters, their populations are actually increasing in at the southern end of their range. So in the north, I don't know that you'll see so much like a decline in productivity um, in the Arctic regions. What you'll see is a change. You know, a lot of especially invading species and species that can grow quickly um, and that can colonize new habitat quickly. Unfortunately, a lot of times those are not the native species. Those are species that are potentially introduced by ship traffic, and that's another thing that's going to happen up there. There's a lot more ship traffic. So you're talking about a, a whole lot of ecological change. And, you know, it's just this grand-scale experiment that we're, uh, you know, we're engaging in without really any controls. So kind of a wild time. Well, I guess it's, it's sort of unfair to, to maybe ask of you if you have any ideas what the hell we can do about this, but I, I guess one thing I might want to throw out first off is that uh, that uh, your company goes all around the world. You have a chance to see, assess things in a lot of different climates. And in this country, there seems to be a political fashion determined to uh, assure us that this is actually not happening. And I, and I guess that uh, from various viewpoints, you can tell us that, in, that it really is. Yeah, well, I mean, and that's just so laughable to me because because it's an attitude that's just breeding on ignorance. You know, you can't, if you have the chance to go out and experience this sort of thing, you just can't go home and say, you know, stick your head in the sand and say, oh, nothing's happening. So it drives me crazy that there's this political force that is basically preying on that ignorance and and motivated by this sense that they can get more votes if they just deny it, mm-hmm. you know. I mean, so for me, you know, the first thing is, you know, learn about it, but speak up about it. I mean, I, I'm, I'm pretty keen on, through my expeditions with Cheeseman's Ecology, as far as educating people who travel with us, of course, our reach isn't that huge. We talk to a lot of people, but it's not going to move whole, uh, whole voting populations. But, um, you know, get to know the details, because the science is there, you know. It's pretty funny. I mean, 20 years ago... 15 years ago, even 10 years ago, people would try to contradict the science, quoting discrepancies in the work and quoting papers that seem to present a contradiction. Now, they pretty much just make stuff up. And that's, that's what you see, unfortunately, that's what you got in the Republican convention here, is just making stuff up to try to support this notion that, you know, we can keep burning as much coal as we want and have no consequences. Well, consequences, this summer, we see the beginning of it. You know, this is, this is what we can see, is that crops will fail because any place that's dependent on irrigated agriculture yeah. is uh, susceptible to climate risk. And, and a hot summer like what we had this past summer, that is very much the face of climate change. I mean, this is what we can expect. Not every year, right. you know, but ever more so. The 100-year summer becomes a once-in-five-or-ten-year summer. 
Yeah, I, I, the predictions people have been making for some time is that we will see a much greater variability. So when we have a really cold snap, people are saying, ha, that global warming must be nonsense. But that actually is in the prediction. Well, and that's the thing is one thing we have is a more variable climate where, um, you know, you've got a system that's undergoing change and so more erratic weather. It's hard to, you, you know, it's hard to nail down um, hurricanes at this point, but it's, there's some solid science that points to higher frequency of hurricanes. That makes sense. If you have more warm water, you have more energy that feeds uh, more tropical storms. So that's likely after in the wake of uh, New Orleans just having been battered again. Um, but uh, certainly hot and dry in midsummer, that's, that's just what's going to happen. And it isn't it's certainly not every summer, but uh, what what we've seen is, you know, the models of 20, 15, 10 years ago, those models are holding up now, and they're showing, you know, with higher resolution, we're showing that um, there's really good science behind it. And it's it's just past the point to to argue over the details. Now is really the question of, How's the best way to get to that clean energy economy? What is that best course? Is it through, you know, a carbon tax or is it through a cap and trade system? I mean, ironically, you know, even while we've had total political inactivity uh, in this nation and, you know, somewhat globally as well, the United States emitted less carbon in the last year than we have in 20 years now. That's a few things. One, a little bit the recession. Two, you know, change the natural gas. But it's also because of, to some extent, the development of renewables. I mean, you got Colorado earlier this year had a, a huge proportion of its wind power, uh, of its power being generated by wind, you know, and these are yes. things that they're going on. So, supporting the, the tax credits for alternative energy. I mean, California's, California's being quite the leader. We now have our regional greenhouse gas initiative um, development where we have a carbon market, and it's going to have problems. You know, it's going to, yes. it's not going to work smoothly because it's a new thing, you know, but, but it's what we have to do. There's a learning curve here, and uh, California's willing to be the big guinea pig, and, and I think more power to us, you know? Well, I, yes, indeed. And I, I certainly hope we can see uh, that move to a carbon tax take place. That politically not very palatable, but for, to me that's always seemed like perhaps uh, one, of the, one of the best choices before us. You know, but isn't that funny? Why isn't it politically palatable? I mean, you've got this <laughs> name, carbon tax. Okay, no one's going to like that. But, but there you go. Okay, make it a revenue-neutral tax. You, you're taxing a bad thing, right? You're taxing mm -hmm. carbon emissions. And even if carbon dioxide wasn't responsible for all these things science is showing is, us is doing, you know, you take less of you, less tailpipe emissions, you're going to have less asthma, you're going to have less all these health issues that are caused by oil and, and gas, uh, you know, burning. And, okay, so then you take that, you make it revenue neutral, the government generates a huge, you know, huge tax income and reduces income taxes then, right? So take a tax away from something we want, like employment, and put it on something we don't want, like pollution. Makes perfect sense to me. Unfortunately, it you know, isn't that easy, but, <laughs> but that's what baffles me. Why is it not 
palatable on that level. Well, I think there's just a few interests out there that just don't want to see it go in that direction, and they seem to have a little bit of political muscles, how I would summarize right. it. Well, and, <laughs> you know, and there you have it. I mean, the oil and, oil and gas folks no longer are avidly funding anti-science campaigns. They stopped doing that in the last few years because it was, you know, it was a, becoming a black eye for them, just... Uh, just being exposed for funding these anti-science campaigns, but they're certainly not stopping funding, um, you know, politicians that vote their way and who avidly deny any climate change. So, you know, it's uh, you know, a little bit of political transparency, and you know, what, what with um, Citizens United, there's you know, uh, corporations can spend as much money as they want. And that's that's a shame. That's yes. a real shame. Yes, it is. Uh, before we go, Ted, I want to ask, you were up there undoubtedly with some Russians because you were in some pretty difficult territory to reach. Uh, did you get a sense from the, the, your Russian hosts that they were, uh, they were on board this idea that we got problems up there? Ah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, you know, it's, um, that's one of the best things about this is when you go to these regions that, yeah, it's a Russian territory, but when you're up there, it's you know we, what we feel is this, it's, it's a real global territory and, and Antarctica, my my other season is even is explicitly a global territory. You know these nations convene, and the borders just go away, and you really get you know of course I don't I wasn't exactly hanging with Putin, but uh, <laughs> but you know the Russian scientists who are on board and the Russian expedition staff were very much aware and very much hip to the circumstances that we're putting ourselves into, you know, but they're also aware that Russia, just like, uh, just like, you know, North American corporations is super eager about developing oil and natural gas and, and, and mining resources up in waters that weren't uh, accessible. So there's the ultimate irony. It's like, you know, these oil, <laughs> these oil companies are denying that this problem is happening, but uh, even as they're gearing up to go take advantage of it. So. Well, Ted, this has been most informative. I hope that, uh, that uh, given the number of places that you, you, you reach on, on Cheeseman's Ecology Safaris, you'll be able to talk to us again in the future about some of the things you're finding. And I'm sure listeners are going to want to know more about uh, what you guys are up to, so feel free to, uh, to plug a website. Yeah, absolutely. You know, Cheesemans.com. Um, it's, it's a funny name, but Cheeseman, plural, Cheeseman's.com is, is where we're at. And uh, super fun to talk with you, Doug. And uh, yeah, delighted. Thank you. All right. I just, I, I'm, I'm looking at this astonishing array of places you go, and I, I can see that in, in the year to come, I'm going to have to sign on to one of these. <laughs> I hope so. I'd love to share an adventure with you. All right, sir. Okay. Take care. That's about it for this program, which was produced by Edward McMillan. Special thanks to Nigel Cliff, author of The Last Crusade, for calling us from London. We certainly appreciate that. And to Ted Cheeseman for his excellent report from the top of the world. Hope Ted will be on the show again in the future. That's about it. We'll see you next week at the same time. You've been listening to Radio Parallax. I'm Douglas Everett. And a special thanks today before we go to Priya, our production assistant. It is her birthday. Happy birthday, Priya. Happy birthday, Priya.